You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more. If you want to learn about the music industry and you don't know where to go, tune in to WP88.7. Professor David Kirkfield, along with Dr. Esteban. Marconi out on assignment. On assignment in Flow Rider. And we appreciate having him here. And we appreciate you listening to our radio show and podcast, as you always do. Today's guest, Brian Volkweiss. We will have him shortly. Doctor, should we give some thanks first? Yes, we should. So big thanks to the folks at Van Dyne, Bruno Inc. and White Hat Management with artists like Dave Matthews, Three Doors Down, St. Vincent Kiss, Zach Brown, and Tima Likes Music. There's only one place to go for your band's business management, code of VB CPA.com. When you are ready, don't don't rush it. When you're ready, you do it. But don't right. your your choice. And thanks to Christine. Boy. They, a wealth manager at the forefront group. Christine has helped people all around the world manage their investments, plan out for their retirement when you or someone you know is thinking of building a bridge to your or that person's financial future. Think about the Forefront Group and go to Christine at Forefront.com. Leave the last oi off for savings. As we always appear to do. Manny Junior Band's seventh edition is out and selling like hotcakes. And IHOP has a special. Order some buttermilk and you'll get the butter book. Oh, wow. Yeah, just thought of that. Good. Comes with bacon or sausage, your choice, and uh-huh. juice. No coffee. And uh, William Patterson University has been ranked one of the best in the world, the music business program. So please enroll, go, let us teach you and become better. And now, here is Brian. All right, Dr. Esteban, take it away. Oh, sure. Uh, you know, this is uh, Music Biz 101 and more, and this is the end more part of our podcast. 
And it's really a pleasure to talk to people outside of the strictly the music business. But you seem to be extremely busy because you're, you, you, you seem to corner the comedy market as well as now, um, I have seen the, the uh, Netflix show with Zach Zern and I, I loved it. I thought it was a great show. Thank you. So let's put it, let's go this way. What made you switch to the sort of the business end of the comedy spectrum? Well, I mean, it, it really wasn't a, a switch. Um, you know, now that I've been doing this for a while and there's been some results, I, I hear frequently uh, that I'm a genius or I'm a, uh, I planned everything out so well. I'm a strategic mastermind. I, I get asked, about, people tell that to me all the time. And I, I'm not trying to be humble. I'm not trying to be funny. I, it, there's no strategy. There's no plan. We basically do something that we think is cool. And if it starts making money, we do more of it. If it doesn't make money, we stop doing it. And if it does make money, the next time we see something cool, we do that too. So we, and the, the funny thing is from my point of view, cause like I didn't go to business school, um, you know, we don't stop anything. So it's not like we stop doing stand-up comedy because we started doing documentaries. We just now do documentaries and stand-up comedy. Now we're publishing books. It doesn't mean we stop doing documentaries. You know, now we're doing toys. Like it doesn't mean we stop doing books. We just, we do what we think is cool and we hope the public agrees with us. But if they don't agree with us, which does happen, we stop doing it because we don't want to go bankrupt. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the, uh, the toy division is going to be more than simply um, characters and so on? Well, I mean, it'll be primarily characters, but I mean, like we're putting out our big, our first pre-sale uh, next week. So, you know, we, it, we bought, you know, about a year ago, we bought a copyright of a toy from the eighties called RoboForce, uh, which if you haven't heard of, the reason is, um, when it was announced at Toy Fair in 1983 on a Tuesday, it was the biggest toy ever. Uh, Toys R Us to this day placed its biggest order. KB Toys at the time placed its biggest order ever. Toys R Us ordered 2 million units. So you might be asking yourself, why have you never heard of RoboForce? And the answer is because on Thursday, uh, Hasbro announced this thing called Transformers, uh, and that's why you've never heard of RoboForce. So we bought that copyright, like I said, about a year ago, less than a year ago, but about a year ago. And um, we're announcing the pre-sale next week. So, and then we have another toy line we're announcing in April at WonderCon, and then another line in, you know, May, and like any toy company would. The only difference is we never made a toy before. So with toys, though, so are you releasing toys with the assumption that it's also going to be part of a cartoon, a new cartoon series, yes. and film and comic books and all these brand extensions of it? So that's not just a toy. So the toy is sort of the the floor and that everything builds off of that. 
I, everything you said, I agree with, except for the word floor. Mm -hmm. uh, the word that I would use if I, and again, I didn't go to business school, but I have definitely learned some terms. Um, there's something called a flywheel. Um, the most famous is one that Walt drew, Walt Disney, um, and uh, Bezos has a pretty famous one too. And the idea is that everything our company does supports everything else our company does. So where's RoboForce, for example, is starting off as a toy, but we are developing a TV show. We're developing a book. We're developing a podcast. We're developing, we're already selling merchandise, t-shirts and mugs. So that's how RoboForce is starting. But like other lines that we're working on, um, like Paul Frank, for example, that's going to start off as a TV show. You know, we have a book coming out with Jenny Mullins uh, called City of Lights. We set that up at Sony and I can't say who, but we have one of the biggest showrunners in history uh, about to sign on board to run the show. So every single thing we do, and that's why I'm nitpicking at your use of the word floor, which might make me a jerk, apologies. You're such a uh, jerk, like, Brian, you're such a jerk. I, I know, I know, I know. Get off. My wife told me that nine minutes ago. <laughs> um, but uh, we, we it, there's no floor, there's no ceiling. It, it's a circle that in theory, if we do our jobs right, everything will support everything else. All right. Okay, so how is your, um, what is your distribution in terms of toys and so on? Is it website? Is it online? Is it in Walmart? Or It's, I mean, again, it, it's so funny to say this to you because we've never put out a toy before, but I mean, within reason, it's identical to any toy company other than Hasbro and Mattel, which just operate at a higher level than everybody except for them. Right. Um, it's gonna start on our website. Then it's gonna go to the online stores. Uh, so that's like Big Bad Toys, Amazon, um, a lot of, again, I don't know what your toy knowledge is, uh, but then after that, it'll go to big box. I don't know about Walmart, but likely Target, um, Spencer's Gifts, um, all those kind of bricks and mortar stores. And then, um, and actually, to be honest with you, I got the order wrong. The first thing is our own website. Then after that, we have built and we're still building our own distribution network with mom and pop stores. So we have over 130 mom and pops signed up to our distribution network. Uh, our goal is to be over 250 by January. Um, so that'll be the second step. The third step will be the big toy companies, like I said, like Amazon or Big Bad Toys, which is the biggest toy website there is. And then the, uh, the big box retailers, including Best Buy. Mm. So the company, your company, funding comes from? How? From our, our prior products. We okay. have a gigantic, I do believe the biggest stand-up comedy library in existence. It's well over a thousand titles. And, you know, we own those. We're a distributor as well. So we self-distribute dozens and dozens. It's probably over a hundred by now, you know, 
monetary producing places like Pluto, Tubi, Peacock, Samsung, probably should have started with Amazon. So we have money coming in every second of every day. Um, I mean, not literally, it gets generated every second of every day. Uh, we get paid quarterly, uh, but um, that money, you know, rather than buy a yacht or a second house or whatever, we just keep reinvesting into the company, into new adventures. And this year it's toys. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But now, we're fully privately funded. We've never taken a dime of outside equity. I own the company outright. So it's, mm -hmm. it's yeah, it's our, we're playing with house money. All right. Now in the, uh, in the seventies, I was on the road with it. I was in a band on Epic Records and we did a couple of dates. Well, we did two dates actually with Dick Gregory oh. at some club at the bottom of Boylston street. That was totally whatever. So consequently they found that we had done, I think it was with somebody like, I'm going to make up a name like peaches and herb and killed. And then they had us come back and open for Dick Gregory and found, came to the realization at that time that the comedy audience was different from the music audience and that he didn't do well. He, he more or less bombed in a music club and so on. So I'm wondering, did you think that there was something wrong with distribution of comedy records that brought you to the idea that you knew better on how to do it or where the audience was or what? No, um, they, the, the people that I wanted to work with uh, didn't want to work with me. Um, it, this goes back to what I was saying earlier about people telling me I'm a strategic genius. Uh, if there's anything I can be proud of and I can claim to be proud of is when I was told no, I built my own system, but there was no strategic genius involved. I had no choice. Um, Comedy Central wouldn't buy from me. Uh, HBO wouldn't buy from me. Showtime wouldn't buy from me. So I had no choice. I had to build it. My, I either had to quit and change what I did for a living or I had to try and do it myself. And it was very risky. I mean, it was risky to the point where if I knew what was coming, never in a trillion years would I have done it. I mean, my CFO, I think he's still psychologically damaged from uh, what we jokingly refer to uh, as the battle of 2013. So um, it was staggeringly risky. Uh, I mean, it took about 10 years uh, for it to, maybe not 10 years, but I mean, it probably took about eight years to be like, okay, we're not gonna go bankrupt, we might survive. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, it was about eight years of, of living like that for lack of a better expression, um, mm -hmm. but it worked. Mm -hmm. But that's why we did it, we had no choice. Yeah, yeah. Do most of the high level comedians own their own label and you distribute that or what? No. No, no very, very few do. Um, you know, Bill Burr does. Technically, Louis Anderson does, or Louis Anderson, <laughs> uh, Louis C.K., but I'm pretty sure that is uh, defunct. 
uh, except for his own stuff. Um, but no, it, it really, it really is to a certain degree, just Bill Burr. I'd give an honorable mention to Kevin Hart. I mean, he's a real entrepreneur uh, and, and, and he really is like, a lot of people claim to be business people. Kevin is. Um, but other than that, I'm sure I'm forgetting one or two, but not really, no. Yeah, Chappelle, I'm thinking of. And no, I mean, Chappelle, we've distributed Chappelle's last five albums. Um, uh, we've distributed Rock's last two. Can we take a, a, a step back? Um, so for, for people listening, first of all, uh, we were discussing your last name, Brian Volk Weiss, Brian Woke Weiss. Brian Volk Weiss, where, 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 where Brian uh, Bo Weiss, where are you in there? You, you, you actually, you're one of the first people ever. Uh, you got it right the first time. A oh, Volk Weiss. Yeah. Okay. Like in it's Germany, spelled. If we lived in Germany, it would be Volk Weiss. Ah. Okay. So, uh, but you, and you'd be a folk singer. Get it? That's funny. Comedy. Sign me to many albums. So, but going back to, I'm looking at my notes, um, mid, mid 2000s, you were working from what I understand for a company, New Wave Entertainment. And then as an employee there, you started New Wave Dynamics, which became Comedy, comedy Dynamics. Is that how it worked? And you mentioned now you own some, you own the company. So explain sort of the, uh, the evolution of where you were to where you are today. Yeah, so my company now is called the Nacelle Company, and that is what used to be New Wave. So I basically, the company did a lot of things, and I bought what I had built and then renamed it the Nacelle Company. So I started off as a manager, which is what led to, and I only managed comedians. Then that led to the stand-up special production and then that eventually, so I took the commissions from the management days and I built a comedy library. That library allowed us, once it hit a certain scale, which if my memory is accurate, happened in 2014, then we were able to become a distributor. And then after we had become a distributor, it allowed us to start self-financing all the, you know, you mentioned, for example, Down to Earth with Zac Efron, you know, one of our Netflix shows, we own that, you know, so we now we're doing in docuseries, like we just had a show come out on History Channel um, in November called The Center Seat. Shut up, Siri. Um, <laughs> we just had a show come out on History Channel um, called The Center Seat, 55 Years of Star Trek. Well, that show came out today in the UK. We own that show. So we're just kind of moving up what, again, I didn't go to business school, so I love using these fancy terms. We're just kind of moving up the value chain where every time we kind of figure out a business and it starts to become profitable and predictable, um, we just keep, so we're starting to get into scripted. So hopefully we're going to produce our first technically our second, because we did a horrible horror film called 8989 Redstone in 2013. The only thing I've ever made that's lost money. Um, but forgetting about that disaster, uh, we have our first real movie, hopefully going into production next year. And then the idea would be to get into scripted television as well that we self-finance and own. 
It's interesting because the model in, in the music world, the model these days is that artists stay independent as long as possible and own everything. They own their publishing, they own their sound recordings, everything. And they only sell those rights off if they're given an offer that they can't refuse. Uh, meanwhile, you know, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, it was try and get a record deal. And basically the record company owns everything and you're just getting an advance. Maybe eventually you recoup and get a royalty. But in generally, all you're seeing ever is the advance. So in your business, if we're having this discussion and we're not doing it over Zoom 20 years ago, but 20 years ago, 15 years ago, we're having this discussion. Are you talking about ownership then or at that point? No, you're trying to get you're trying to basically license this or what was the deal structure that it used to be and how is that different today? Our deal structure has never changed uh, from day one to an offer that went out uh, about three hours ago. Um, a lot of things about our deal have changed. A lot of things about our deal changed depending on the artist we're doing the deal with. The only thing within reason that has been non-negotiable 15 years ago and three hours ago and everything in between is perpetuity. And that was crazy. I mean, that was absolutely, I am not aware of another company that did that until Netflix. Um, so, I mean, people thought we were insane 15 years ago, but part of my strategy was we dealt, we, we, we would find artists. Cause like, remember I told you, I used to be a manager. So I had a lot of friends who were agents and also other managers after I retired as a manager um, that would give me guidance. So we would go to a comedian that couldn't sell 50 tickets and we would say, hey, we will shoot your stand-up special. We'll spend six figures on it and we'll split the money in the back end but we need to own it in perpetuity as a reward for us taking the risk on a comedian that cannot sell 20 tickets. Mm -hmm. That's Ali Wong for us. That's Tom Segura for us. That's Tiffany Haddish. I mean, so we got a lot of comedians early on and we still do that to this day um, where we go in first, everybody else passes and then we'll go do a deal. So that's sometimes how we work. The other way we work is we just pay more than anybody else. So, you know, there'll be a comedian that has like three offers between 200 and 500 grand, we'll offer a million to 1.5 and it'll take us longer to become profitable, but we will, we will own the special with the artist, by the way. So I just, I wanna be very clear about that. We do not have a single contract where the artist is not getting profit in the back end. So that's, so they're profiting with us. And, you know, one of the arguments that whenever the agents, lawyers, and sometimes the comedians themselves, one of the arguments, whenever they say, I don't understand, why would we give it to you in perpetuity? One of the arguments I've been making from the beginning is, well, I don't understand, like, you're okay with a 25-year deal, but you're not okay with perpetuity. So let's talk about that. Mm. You're 55 years old. You know what? <laughs> Let me say 50 because I'm bad at math. You're 50 years old. 
You're telling me when you're 75, you're going to start a record label? Like, isn't your job to write jokes and like tour? You want to start hiring people? Like, I don't understand. And every now and then, frequently, you'll hear an artist say, yeah, but I want to give it to my kids. And I'm always like, do you want to give a piece of paper that is a copyright notice to your kids that goes into a file with all the other stuff that goes into a file when you die? Um, or do you want them to get a check every 30, every six, every 90 to 180 days? Like, is this about the money or is it about the, the th theoretical desire to have ownership? And 99% of the time that argument works. And the 1% of the time where it doesn't work, we won't do the deal. Right. Now, do they get a bigger piece uh, if things go very, very well? I mean, is it a graduated scale? This is going to sound like I'm dodging your question, but I swear to you, this is actually a very accurate, specific answer. Every deal is different yeah. on this topic. I mean, it's some yes, some no, it's all, it's all, every deal is different. And, sure. and, you know, to be, to put it out there, why are the deals different? Is there a comedian that we think is worth 800 grand and they insist on 1.2? Well, yeah, if I agree to pay 1.2, then yeah, their back end will be less because we've taken on more risk. Mm -hmm. And it goes the other way as well. Sometimes a comedian will say, I've got 80 million in the bank. I don't care about the upfront, but I want the majority of the back end. We're like, great. If you've reduced our risk, we will absolutely up your reward and reduce ours. So the content you're creating when we're talking about these types of specials, do you already have a Netflix or uh, an outlet lined up? Or is that part of, okay, let's do the deal. Then we believe that we're through our connections, through our track record, we're going to get that distribution. It's just a matter of, of feet to the pavement, you know, ears to the phone, whatever. I mean, this goes to why we refer to 2013 as the, uh, the battle of 2013. We never pre-sell. And nobody in the history of the business has done that at scale. And what I mean by my little caveat of quote unquote at scale, Every now and then you'll have a company do one or two a year. They usually never do a third. Um, and part of the reason we succeed at this when others fail is because we operate at scale. But the problem is that is a, not as much for us anymore, but that is a staggering amount of risk. By the way, I mean, I cannot tell you how many times in my career a company says, we're gonna do what Comedy Dynamics is doing. And then I was about to say five years later, but honestly, sometimes it's even two years later, we're buying their library. So like, it's very, very hard to do what we do, not because we're geniuses, not because we have special powers, nobody else does. But at this point, our library size within reason cannot be replicated. And the size of the library gives us access. The reason we have the deals we do in our distribution network is because of the scale in which we operate. So we have direct deals with all these companies 
they're not going to do deals with a company that only has 50 specials. They might not even do a deal with a company that only has 200 specials. So that's, it's this kind of self-replicating moat that protects our model. But then again, I am prepared to wake up any day and find out that a company is taking private equity and they're going to spend half a billion to replicate what we did. I mean, that could happen any day. Do you believe um, that the music companies know how to promote comedy records as well as music? So are you asking like, is Warner Brothers as good at promoting a stand-up album as they are a music act? Yes. I think they're very good at it, but I, I say this to you with bias, but I believe I'm answering this without bias. I, I don't think they do it as well as we do. And the reason is it's all we do. So like, we know the guy at Target that isn't even in the stand-up record business unit at Target, but we know that guy loves stand-up. So we send him vinyl records every month because we know he works down the hallway from the girl who really does work in the vinyl unit at Target. And between our relationship with her and him, we get better placement, we get better rates. I'm just using that as, as, as a made up example, but it's these details that make any business, like I said, we just started publishing books. Like if there's an author that could get a deal at Random House or a deal with us, they should go with Random House because Random House knows those little nooks and crannies that we don't know yet. But on stand-up comedy, we, we have that down to a science, I, I believe. When you're cutting deals, are you trying to do video like the Netflix film, then the soundtrack at the same time, and then the book, and then maybe something else, uh, a TV series or something? You're trying to lock in that uh, comedian across many things, almost like a 360 deal on the music side, or are you looking at one at a time? With, with comedians, it's only stand-up video and audio, or mm -hmm. sometimes only audio. Yeah, I mean, but like when we buy a copyright, it's everything. Right. Are you, when you're, let's say you're doing a deal with a comedian with Netflix, for example, does, does part of that, and it's a distribution deal at that point since you own the content, is Netflix giving you the rights to take portions of that so that you can put it up on TikTok so people can see it in the hopes that they're more interested and that they're going to go back? Or is Netflix like, keep it off of that, they can only see it here, you know, in that form in terms of social media, especially TikTok is, is ripe with lots of comedy and lots of stand-up comedy. So where, where are the deals with that and how does that work in the strategy? Well, here's how you'll know I was telling the truth earlier when I said every deal is different. Uh, same answer, every deal is different. Um, and not only is every deal different, I mean, we have been in business with Netflix uh, since 2009. Uh, I swear to you, people think I'm joking when I say this. I'm not. I mean, when I signed that deal, I, I didn't even know what streaming meant. All I knew was it, it, they were paying me to license titles that were already profitable. So I didn't care what streaming meant. Uh, it, it didn't conflict with any prior deal. And the money was good. So, you know, so the deals we did with Netflix in 2009 almost had nothing in common with the deals we were doing with Netflix in 2015. So 
talking about 2022, the deals we do with Netflix now are either work for hire where we don't own them at all, um, but it's such a great artist and I have no better partner in my entire career than Netflix. So anything they want me to do as long, I mean, I'll do stuff with Netflix. We'll just break even on. It's just such an honor to be in business with them. Um, so that's our work for hire business. And then sometimes we license things to them for, you know, a year to five years. And it, those are 99% of the time, non-exclusive deals. And taking the work for hire where you break even, for example, you're doing that partially to work with Netflix so that hopefully that gets you other deals down the line. It, you know, what, what is the strategy there? Is it strictly just, I just like working with them or yeah, it's, your resume look good too? No, it's, it's um, you know, I feel like I've been giving you a lot of business answers. So hopefully you'll trust me when I give you a really kind of artsy fartsy BS answer, but I'm just a comedy geek. Like, I just love comedy. I, I love I love comedians. I love stand-up. I'm just like, I'm a real geek in general, but in certain topics, I'm just a huge geek. And I just want to work with comedians. Like, again, I, I'm not allowed to name names, but like, we just did a work for hire a month ago. And, you know, psychologically, it's in theory tough because we're doing all this work and we'll never make any back end on it. But I love that comedian so much. Like I'm so honored to be in business with that comedian. And I'm also so honored to be in business with Netflix. Like, I mean, like I said, I got in business with them so early. They were on the verge of bankruptcy when in 2009. Like they were in that middle of that whole thing where like they were shutting down their physical business and all this stuff. And, you know, that deal we did in 2009 is one of the most important deals in the history of my company, not to mention the fact they're also the company that greenlit the toys that made us, which is the show that changed my entire company. So, I mean, my only rule with Netflix, if they want us to do a work for hire is I just don't want to lose money. But I mean, if we made 10 bucks profit, I would be thrilled. It, it doesn't matter. I just, I want to work with great artists and I, I want to be in business with Netflix as much as possible. And they are, you know, the other thing I just want to say about Netflix is because I feel like they get a lot of grief. Like in addition to how great they've been to my company, they are, I've worked with no better company. They are such smart, kind. These are kind people and they're, they're aggressive, they're A-type personalities, they are brilliant, but they are kind. In the middle of COVID, I, uh, when everybody was shutting down and all these shows were getting canceled, I got a call from our executive telling me, hey, I literally saw his name on my phone and I'm like, oh, all my shows are getting canceled, great. And he literally called to tell me, hey, tomorrow you're gonna see on the news, a lot of our shows are getting canceled don't worry, yours or not. Who makes a call like that? I mean, do you have any idea how busy these executives are? Like, so I just always like to go out of my way because I feel like everybody picks on them. I saw Sandra Bullock say something very nice about them a couple weeks ago. Until that, I've never seen anybody really, not that they need me to defend them by any stretch, but 
I feel I always feel the need to point stuff out like that. Getting a little bit off the subject, we hear those of us in the rank and file hear that comedians are very depressed as a group. Is that true? You mean people? Yes. I don't think depressed is the right uh, word. Here's here's the way I look at it. And again, I again, I was a manager for ten years. Yeah. I was on the road. I have produced to this day the biggest tour in the history of stand up. Like. I know comedians. I had six comedians at my wedding. There is a line in Bob Seger's Turn the Page uh, where he says, um, I'm paraphrasing, but he says something like, you know, I'm driving, the lights are in my eyes and all my energy I try to give away. And I'm paraphrasing. I can Google it to tell you the exact line. Right. But that's comedians. So like the truck driver to stay awake on a 15-hour haul, he's giving away all his energy to make that haul. A comedian, the same thing is them on stage. So one of the things I always find so interesting is, you know, I'll be at a show with a when I was a manager, with a client, whatever, and they'll be on stage running around, yelling and screaming, going crazy, right? Then afterwards, we'll go out to dinner. You know, we're sitting there at IHOP or Denny's or P.F. Chang's having dinner. And if somebody didn't know who the comedian was and you saw the body language between me and the comedian, you would think I was the comedian. You would think I was the entertainer. The way I'm talking to the waiter, like you would think I was the entertainer. But the reason is, I didn't have to give all my energy away on stage. They did. And the other thing, so that's half my answer. The other half my answer is to be a good comedian, you need to be one of the smartest people ever born. And that means you're thinking, you're thinking, you're thinking. And that doesn't mean you're depressed, but it means you're thinking a lot and you're not running around like a numb nuts, you know, like, whoo, what a great day if that makes sense. But I would say maybe 10% of comedians are depressed and 90% are some degree of what I just said. I remember Jim Carrey uh, back when he was playing the Riddler in one of the Batman movies. So I don't know if that was 90s or the, you know, Jim Carrey at the height of his career. And he said he was having trouble on the set because people would come up to him and he can't be on 24-7. You know, every word he can't say isn't the funniest thing in the world. And people would say, how are you doing? He'd go, I'm doing okay. And then people would just start laughing because they thought it was supposed to be funny. Or then they'd get upset because he said fine and it wasn't laced with, with a joke. And he said he almost couldn't win because of their expectation of who he was and who he really was. And it's sort of an interesting conundrum for as comedians, it's probably the same for a lot of actors and people like that, too. Yeah, I, it's, listen, I, I, I know it's, it's so funny. I've been saying this for years, um, but it, the, the more press that I do, uh, the, the more ridiculous this statement is getting. I, real, I do realize that, but I could not imagine a worse fate than being famous. I, I, I really... Uh, I feel like I have the perfect amount of fame. Like I'm famous when I walk into a toy store, like nobody bothers me at airports. Nobody bothers me, you know, when I'm walking down the street in Manhattan. Like 
I mean, I've been, I've traveled with comedians and like, I was traveling with a comedian and this guy wasn't even that famous compared to some of the people I've worked with. And we were at Dallas airport and um, I came out of the bathroom. I mean, there, there must've been 80, 90 people around him trying to get an autograph. And this, again, I, I can't stress enough on a scale of one to 10 of fame, 10 is a Kevin Hart. This guy was like a three. Mm. And Luckily for him, his personality was such that he enjoyed that. But I, my personality, I mean, I, I couldn't imagine being more, I'd hide in the bathroom until my flight was to, about to take off. Back to sort of the business side of, especially on the audio end, how much of your, and, and it's and a bad, bad way to phrase it. You get probably a, a decent amount of revenue from sound exchange because of, for example, Sirius XM has a number of different comedy channels. Is that the sound exchange revenue? Is that significant? Is that just a piece or is that a, a, a sizable chunk of the audio revenue that comes in? Um, it's in the middle. I'd say it's in between. It's a chunk and the word you used uh, significant. It's in between mm -hmm. those two things. Do you have somebody who's actually pitching SiriusXM when you have some stuff coming out? Do you have like an independent radio person? No, we, uh, we're very blessed. Uh, we send what we send and they play it. Are they just listening to the full album, for example, and saying, okay, this 11 minute or six minute skit or part is what we're going to put on. Do you have any idea how that works? I, I have absolutely no idea. It's so funny you ask that. I have no clue. I have absolutely no clue. I, I, I really don't know. I could guess, but I'd be guessing. I, if I had to guess, there's no way they're listening to every album. <laughs> that that would require a staff of a hundred people. But I could be wrong. I could. I'm one of my best friends in the whole world. Runs it, uh, Jack Vaughn, uh, one of the greatest human beings who's ever lived. I, I could text him right now and ask. Uh, but I can tell you this: I do know. He does not have a staff of 100 people. But for all I know, they listen to every album. I, I really don't know. It's a great question. Thank you. I worked hard on that <laughs> for you. Is your staff, your company, because, for example, you go to IMDb and you look up you. And I don't know how often you look up you, but I look you up. as did Very rarely. Yes. I, I would be kind of boring after a while. But Apparently, right now, you have 17 projects, a mix of in-production and post-production. How many people in your company are involved in all those 17 projects? And there's probably, it's probably not 17. It might be more, it might be less, depending upon what the, where they get their info. But how big is your company? I worry, I worry to say this because it'll make me sound like a jerk, but we, we, we have way more than 17 things uh, in, in post. That 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 was uh, that would have been around 2010, maybe 2012. Um, I mean, it's just under 200 people uh, between full time and part time staff are involved with everything we do, and that doesn't include vendors. Like, you know, we have an internal PR team, we have an external PR team. So, like, when I tell you it's just under 200. I mean, that doesn't even include the external people. And let's talk about how you're finding talent. Are you constantly being pitched by agencies, whether it's CAA or UTA or, or how are you, or you just have anybody you just in your free time looking, like I said, at TikTok or something, oh, that guy's funny. 
So one of the things that I learned as a manager, um, and you know, I think it's worth mentioning because I think this is relevant to the story. I, I was not a manager at a big management company. I was a manager at a tiny management company. So I didn't work at Brillstein. I didn't work at Three Arts. I didn't work wherever. So that's part of the reason why I said earlier, nobody would buy from me. A, a big part of that was because of that reason is you know, people the same age as me would call from Three Arts and Comedy Central would hire their clients. So I was in a weird way kind of lucky by not working at a great company like that. So, you know, back to your question though, like I, I find, so when I was a manager, I, because I was at a small company, I, what I learned was I would call these executives at wherever, Comedy Central, Showtime, and I would have a client that over the course of 12 months, let's just pick a random city. Let's, let's pick Denver. I would have a client that in, let's say, 2004 had sold 800 tickets in Denver. And in 2005 had sold 30,000 tickets. So in one year, they went from 800 tickets to 30,000 tickets. The other thing that's interesting about that statement is the 800 tickets probably cost five to $10,000 in marketing. The 30,000 tickets probably cost zero in marketing. My client just got hot. So then I would call Showtime and be like, hey, I got this client, you should do a deal with me. And they'd say, no, they didn't believe me. So it's not this, sorry. It's not that they didn't believe me about the numbers. And just so you know, sometimes I would literally send the numbers, but they just didn't do the deals. So the reason I bring that up in answer to your question is, it's not about me. It's not like, the, I, I would hear all these executives say to me, oh, I don't find her funny. And in my head, I would be like, who cares what you think is funny? 30,000 people in Denver, a city of less than a million people just paid 40 bucks a ticket, hired a babysitter, two drink minimum, food order required. Who cares what you think? You should do a deal because of those ticket sales. So because I have that knowledge as a manager, I have a network, I I've never counted, but I do believe it's less than two dozen people. And that's the network I use. It's comedy club owners, it's agents, it's managers, and it's most importantly, comedians. So I'll get a text, I got a text earlier this year, I mean, this is gonna sound nuts, I got a text earlier this year from a comedy club owner that I respect and love. He said, you should take a look at this comedian. I'll be completely honest with you. I didn't even look. We did some research. We found out who her agency was. We sent an offer. We did a deal. This commits us to roughly a quarter million dollar expenditure all in, if not more. I haven't even seen her act. It, it doesn't matter. 
What matters is the person who told me has been doing this for three decades. He's never steered me wrong and I trust him. We have done over 200 specials using this model. It has failed exactly four times. That's interesting because so much today is built upon analytics, you know, and data, and you're completely going by gut and, 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 uh, and word of mouth. So that's great. It's interesting. Yeah. And it's, and by the way, of the four failures, one, I would say was like out of the artist's control. The other three failures, one of which I brought a new person into the fold, never to be brought back. So I, I would argue my system has worked um, all but two times. We have uh, just a couple minutes left. Dr. Esteban, do you have anything else that you'd like to get? Yes, I have maybe a trivia question. If uh, just on a comedian basis, would you sign Marvelous Mrs. Maisel? So I'm going to tell you, it's so funny. I'm going to tell you something that I say all the time about that show. And I probably shouldn't say this with a recording device, but I'm going to say it. That show, almost with like a Cray computer staggering precision, could not be better designed for me not to like it. <laughs> I don't like shows about the entertainment business. I can say this because I'm Jewish. I don't like stuff about Jewish stuff. I just, anything I do already, I find very boring. Uh, and I sure as hell don't like shows about the comedy business. Like I said, there is no show I should dislike more than that show. <laughs> that is absolutely, positively, one of my favorite shows in the history of television. All right. And if you really want to appreciate how crazy it is, you should see the other names on the list. Game of Thrones, Walking Dead, Star Trek, like, and then in the middle is, Maisel. Right. Like that show is so well written, so brilliantly. And the other thing I tell people all the time if you really want to know a manager's job, ah. don't watch Entourage. Ah. That right. show absolutely perfectly covers what it's like to be a manager. The ending of season three, when they're sitting there on the airplane, and I forget the guy's name, but his manager says to Maisel's manager, basically, today sucks, but I promise you, the next time you have this conversation, I'm getting the chills right now. Yeah. He's like, it's Sterling Brown who says it. He's like, the next time you have a conversation like this, you will be in my shoes saying it to someone else. Yeah. No, and by the way, even the way she got fired, Right. All of that. I know. When I was a manager, I dealt with that stuff every day. It sure. is that show is a precision designed work of art. And what? her as a comedian, you wouldn't like. No, oh, she's hysterical. Yeah, no, she's great. Well, this interview has been great. And I think it's been a precisionally, that's the wrong word. It's been done with precision and it's the perfect interview. And I think um, by you being very good. Yeah, you really planned it out. So thank you. Nice change of pace for us, Dave. Yes, it was a very good change of pace with us. Right. And no, this is great. I uh, love these questions. They're great. I, normally I get asked, who's your favorite comedian? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I know. 
Um, who's your favorite Shakespearean actor from the 1700s? You don't get asked that very much. I was going to go with John Wilkes Booth until you said 1700s. Yes, yeah, see, that's that was the twist there. Yeah, Jeff, yeah. So, so we're going to end it real quick. Then one quick question uh, off camera after. So, um, Brian Volk Weiss. At the end of every show, we don't say goodbye, and we don't say hello. Do you know what we say? And this is a good trivia question for all for you and all your favorite comedians. Is it may your journey be free of incident? That'd be good. Yeah, that would that would be the thing that we could do. It's not what we do, although that's for, and may your journey be free of any incident, whether it's bathroom based or any other type. In particular, bathroom based. Yeah, I think something. How, about how do you say it? Um, at the end of every show, we end it with a Mexican phrase that means I wish you didn't like John Mayer or pretend to care about what I say so much. Wish I never met your friends and heard from them. They said, don't mess this up. Wish I never told my mom that boy I saw in the east side of the city. How'd you make this so hard? Your loaded gun, take me out of my misery and curse your door.